0: In all areas, the UK continues to
1: backtrack.
0: Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. Each week we bring you all the latest Brexit news from Dublin, London and Brussels. I'm speaking to our London correspondent, Sean Boolan, this week. John, we interrupt our usual intro for me to play that musical theme. Is that an appropriate way to start off today's podcast?
2: Well, it certainly is, Colin, because uh, nothing says Shropshire North quite like an Abba song about a village in Belgium, does it? Uh, We're talking about Shropshire North because, of course, Boris Johnson has suffered a humongous defeat in a by election uh, that was held there on uh, Thursday by election. Uh, to replace uh, Owen Paterson, the former Northern Ireland Secretary, who got pinged by the regulators in the House of Commons for uh, being a bit naughty and taking money to lobby ministers on behalf of a a pharmaceutical company that makes Covid tests. Not supposed to do that. He wouldn't take his 30-day suspension punishment line down. Prime Minister backed him. All the Tories uh, tried to overturn it. They lost They all got besmirched with sleaze allegations and that triggered a by-election in that place when uh, Owen Paterson resigned uh, rather than uh, face the medicine, as it were. Now, why is all that important? Well, and how does it connect to Waterloo? Well, this is one of the truest blue of true blue seats that you can possibly imagine because this place, Shropshire, has been voting Tory since 1832 and the leader of the Tory party way back in 1832 was the Duke of Wellington. Famous Dubliner. Victor over the f- a famous Dubliner, Victor at uh, Waterloo, and um, he uh, was the leader of the party. He opposed, incidentally, the Great Reform Act of 1832, which expanded the franchise to, would you believe, one in five male uh, males in the population of the United Kingdom, uh, which, of course, at that stage included Ireland as well. Um, but... Uh, he lost uh, out to Earl Grey, the the tea bag man, uh, who got this reform through and allowed some people to vote in elections, got rid of the old rotten boroughs, or did his best to anyway. Um, and But the Tories were very popular out in Shropshire, and they've been holding that seat ever since 1832 until just after 4am this morning, Friday morning, uh, when the Liberal Democrats, the successor party to the Whigs of Earl Grey, Got the seat back uh, off the Tories uh, and uh, their leader at the time, the Duke of Wellington, um, so that 's how far back you uh, have to go on this one uh,
0: I suppose last week we did a rather impromptu podcast. we weren 't planning on doing an episode, but then we were kind of forced into it and the running theme through recent developments that we 've been discussing has been mounting troubles in the Tory party and the troubles they're spilling over into for the British go- for the governance of Britain as a whole means that there is an eagerness, or more of an eagerness at least, to swiftly conclude a deal with the European Union and finally get the irritation of getting Brexit done off the books. So just recap on why we did that episode last week, and then we can get into what happened afterwards.
2: Well, last week we thought nothing was going to happen in Brexit. It was just going to be another yawn fest of talks and a little note from the the two negotiators after their Friday uh, Zoom call to say... Nothing's happened. We'll see you again next week, folks. And while we were waiting for that little note to drop, there was a a rather unexpected briefing uh, from a very senior official on the British side um, to a group of EU journalists, not to the British press, who were a little bit miffed uh, at not getting this one. Now, this official said that there had been a significant shift in the British position and that they were now looking to concentrate on trying to get uh, a partial deal across the line by the end of the year uh, or as soon as possible to deal with the issues of uh, customs and SPS checks, the practical on the ground problems being faced by importers and exporters in Northern Ireland or anybody who's doing business uh, with Northern Ireland from uh, Great Britain, uh, which sounded fine, and also the um, medicines Uh, issue was going to be or was close to being resolved as well not completely to the satisfaction of the British but it was more or less uh, ready to go and as we've known from previous weeks reportage in this pod the EU had legislation ready to go to act unilaterally all that was fine but then uh, when our stories started to uh, hit the the screens uh, of various people uh, the British press got onto Downing Street and said what's the story here Downing Street said we wouldn't characterize this Uh, as being uh, a change in our position at all, um, did a little bit of rubbishing on the uh, idea of the story or some of the interpretations that were being put on uh, the story. But, uh, you know, those of us who were on the the briefing, we know what we heard and (laughs) we have excellent notes of it. So uh, that was that. So there was a bit of a falling out on the British side. And then come, come this week, there was statements from Lord Frost reiterating that governance and the role of the European Court of Justice were still very much in the mix as far as the british side were concerned
0: which doesn't necessarily rubbish what you heard last week i mean they are in the mix it is still a british concern what you heard from the senior british official last week was it doesn't it just wasn't going to be the thing that would derail the talks and they reserved the right to say that it will cause complications further down the line. But they understand the Commission has no mandate to negotiate on issues of governance and the role of the ECJ. So, therefore, they're going to leave it aside and tackle the practical matters. But such was the shade thrown at this by Downing Street, as we can hear now. It was taken as a retraction of that briefing at least the Minister for Foreign Affairs here, Simon Coveney. Let's hear from him.
3: The uh, British officials summoned a group of journalists in London to tell them that the ECJ jurisdiction in the protocol was no longer a red line. But then afterwards, David Frost insisted it still was. What's your understanding of the British position here? Is it still a red line for them? Has something shifted?
1: Well, look, I mean, uh, uh, I mean... I think we have to go on on what, what David Ross says. He's the he's the chief negotiator. He speaks for the Prime Minister um, on Brexit issues. Um, clearly, there was a, a briefing that has essentially been retracted. Um, so, look, I, I think we shouldn't make a big deal of it, to be honest.
0: So, what is it, Sean, retracted or still on the table or Downing Street taking issue maybe with some interpretations of what was said at that briefing and using the negative noises they're making about it uh, to allow people interpret Downing Street's utterances as they will. In other words, anyone who wants to hear a rubbishing of of a U-turn rumour will hear it that way and anyone who wants to hear the more nuanced version of it will hear it that way too.
2: Or else there's a third possibility here, which is there's been a falling out uh, in the um, uh, department and uh, some people think they should be trying to take something off the table now and get some practical gains uh, and wins and easements for people doing business in Northern Ireland, whereas others, and I think the others would fall into the, who would fall in the camp of Lord Frost himself and probably the Prime Minister, uh, thinking, no, 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 we've got to keep on keeping on uh, and try and get a, a whole package together here, even if it means going into next year. And that was the um, lines that were being uh, put out to certain British journalists earlier in the week and indeed, that has been the line that has, has manifested itself uh, today, Friday, uh, after those um, Zoom calls, those weekly Zoom calls. In fact, there was another Zoom call between the, the, the two principal negotiators on Wednesday, but everybody was utterly silent uh, after that one. Uh, Brussels saying, no, 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 we're not saying anything until Friday. And uh, same on the British side. So it was unusual that they were having two lots of calls this week, but I think, uh, looking back now, with the benefit of hindsight, it looks like the Wednesday call was to simply say, look, we're going to park this thing and let's ready it up for communications in a clear way on Friday. Uh, And sure enough, we got a bit of clear communications in uh, verbal form from Brussels on camera and then in a written statement uh, here in London. Should we start uh, with a bit of uh, actuality from Brussels? Yeah, let's hear what what I'd say. So Mara
0: Shevchevich, who's uh, Brussels' point man on matters Brexit and at the moment pretty much matters protocol, and Stella Kyriakides, the health commissioner, had a joint press conference in Brussels to announce what Sean referenced there, a breakthrough on the issue of medicines. We're going to combine a clip of both of them just to give in summary what was said at the conference.
1: I kept my word and today the commission is delivering in the form of a legislative proposal, ensuring that everyone in Northern Ireland has access to the same medicines at the same time as in the rest of the United Kingdom. This goes for both generic medicines and innovative life savings uh, medicine, including those designed for cancer treatment.
3: If a new medicine has been authorized in the UK, but not yet in the EU, it will be temporarily supplied to patients in Northern Ireland pending authorization in the EU. It is important to recall that patients in Northern Ireland already have immediate access to EU authorized medicines thanks to the protocol. For Cyprus, Malta and Ireland, our proposal provides a temporary derogation so that they can continue to source medicines from the UK if needed.
0: So that was both Mara Shevchevich saying he had delivered on a commitment he had made to people in Northern Ireland on the ground and Stella Kiriakidis elaborating on that. We're just going to get a bit more detail on what exactly is being proposed and how this will work in terms of the treatment of medicines coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland.
3: And this is what we're doing today. Ensuring that people in Northern Ireland Cyprus, Malta and Ireland, that still depend on the UK medicine supply, can continue to get medicines they need whenever they need them. To guarantee long-term continuous supply of medicines from the UK, our proposals make targeted amendments to the EU pharmaceutical legislation, as well as targeted changes to our EU clinical trials rules. They give exceptional administrative flexibility to the UK in respect to Northern Ireland so that certain regulatory functions for medicines for human use authorized by the United Kingdom for the Northern Ireland market under the protocol may be exceptionally located in Great Britain. This covers, for example, marketing authorisation holders and qualified persons for pharmacovigilance and batch testing. This is important for northern uh, for patients in Northern Ireland since they will have to access they will have access to innovative life-saving medicines as the vice president has already mentioned such as new cancer medicines as soon as other pa- patients have access to these anywhere else in the UK
0: So Sean having heard from the European Commission there the response from David Frost which came out as that press conference was being held said This could could constitute a constructive way forward. We're willing to look at these proposals positively, but as we have not been able to scrutinise the text in the necessary detail, we are not yet, yet able to make that judgment with full confidence. Uh, Mara Shevcevic disputed that. Let's just hear what he said to that before I come back to you.
1: I can also tell you that over the last six months we provided extensive information sessions and discussions with Lord Frost and uh, uh, his team. So I believe there will be no surprises uh, in uh, the proposal for him. So
0: Mara saying they knew what was coming, they knew the substance of it. A rather kind of a negative press release, it must be said coming in the form of the statement from David Frost, entirely almost unimpressed with this initiative from the European Commission.
2: Well, Katie Hayward up in uh, Queen's University referred to this uh, statement from Lord Frost as 13 bullet points of doom and gloom, and uh, she was rather regretting the fact that uh, the British side didn't uh, seize on these EU proposals. Um, As is uh, Raoul Rupert, one time leading light of the Brexit movement uh, and uh, a trade expert himself saying you know, they, they could have uh, rallied behind and presented it as a joint initiative but uh, they didn't really seem to go down that route and in the end it isn't a joint initiative, it's a unilateral uh, run by the uh, European Union. But I guess uh, what happened earlier in the week when the British said they weren't going to introduce customs controls on uh, goods coming from the Republic of Ireland into Great Britain, that was also uh, a a unilateral move, so each side had a unilateral this week, and they two cancel each other out, so there's nobody particularly shouting about unilateral acts, um, one directed against the other this week. Right. Uh, but the, the medicines proposal, you know, it, it should make things a lot easier and the Commissioner saying everybody get their cancer drugs, generic medicines can be authorised in the UK. Um, no need for batch testing with for goods being or medicines being imported into Northern Ireland which would be really expensive and there's a three-year transitional measure for uh, Republic of Ireland for Malta and for Cyprus who also get medicines on certain contracts from certain companies in the UK Uh, they'll have the same uh, easement supplied to them for three years so they can make adjustments and that also buys time to get a more permanent and durable solution on the medicines issue so you know, from the Commission's point of view, I guess they're trying to take this one off the table as much as possible. And right. as we've spoken about before, it's a bit of a weapon that the British have been able to use against them. Uh, maybe that's why uh, Lord Frost didn't really want to uh, give that one uh, up.
0: Right. You might be shocked to hear that the Democratic Unionist Party leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, said it's a step in the right direction, but not far enough. And uh, so he's he reserves judgment on it for now. Just in terms of the tone of uh, David Frost's statement, I was struck by one thing that Mara Shevchevich said and that's, we're going to hear from him him now, we'll pick up after this. It's basically the example shown on this medicines initiative and how that might be rolled out to unlock other areas that have become problematic in the protocol.
1: I'm convinced that the issue of medicines show that the protocol has the flexibility to work on the ground. Therefore, we must carry this momentum into the other areas of discussion here too the eu's objective remains the same to jointly identify durable solutions to ease the flow of goods between great britain and northern ireland this covers both customs and the movement of sanitary and phytosanitary goods particularly on customs if the Political goodwill is maintained. Our discussions could lead to a timely agreement on measures that would bring significant simplification for operators on the ground.
0: So, Sean, as we heard there, that was Maros Shevchevich saying he's convinced that the issue of medicines show that the protocol has the flexibility to work on the ground and the same momentum must be carried into other areas of discussion. Now, if you were listening to this, as somebody on the British government side of things, you might say, well, if medicines is the precedent, then legislative change effectively is being offered by the European Union on future issues. Because if medicine laid the template that if they see there is a sufficient problem to need legislative change in order to preserve a vital supply to Northern Ireland and maintain stability within Northern Ireland, Well, what's not to say that that legislative change wouldn't be on offer on something else or why wouldn't it be on offer on something else further down the line if this is the framework by which other problems would be solved?
2: Because it sets uh, a precedent. I mean, it's one thing to uh, change your laws unilaterally to ensure the flow of cancer-fighting drugs and novel drugs and all the, the headache tablets that everybody is used to and have been utterly well-regulated and are generic products anyway, so there's nothing new or novel about them. Uh, They're well-established products. That's easy kind of stuff, uh, and it's also a humanitarian gesture, and also there's a general health override, as it were, in all EU legislation. They're able to act very quickly uh, to get around any legal problems to make sure the human health is protected. The same is not true in the case of the Customs Union uh, and the plant and animal checks, SPS checks. Uh, These are things that are well-established, apply to all the other countries that the EU does trade with around the world, which is basically everybody. And if you start making special exceptions for one person, i.e. the British, everybody else says, hey, what about us? Starting, I suspect, with Turkey, which is already in the customs union, Um, but still has to face uh, a bunch of controls or some limited controls, they might start looking for uh, other easements there. And before you know it, everybody, literally the world and his wife, looking for easements and changes to EU rules. So that is why they won't go down that route.
0: Having said that, I mean, the cat is now out of the bag. Mara Shevchevich is the person who has said that what has been done on medicines could provide the basis to do business in other areas, it is at least open to the interpretation that something would be on offer. Whether the European Union would want to walk that back after the fact would be something entirely different.
2: Well, something is on offer, and what's on offer is the range of easements that they proposed back in October. So perhaps the other interpretation of this is, hey guys, look, here's the, the deal is on the table now. You can sign it or we can make our own changes here and then see how you react to it. Because there's a certain amount of Mexican standoff going on here, of the British. It's well, don't, don't don't, don't bring
0: NAFTA into it now. Come on.
2: <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I mean, this is this is the the show for trade nerds <laughs> and their dogs when they're being walked. Um, yeah, it's there is a standoff here uh, in that Lord Frost seems to be happy enough to proceed on the basis of uh, playing very hard ball of taking these talks which are supposed to wrap up in November right up to christmas and now kicking it into the new year uh, and we've no idea how long they're going to persist there of course there was the uh, pro forma statement that uh, we're ready to use article 16 should we need to do that but as we've mentioned here a zillion times article 16 simply starts you off on an intensive uh, talks process. So, you know, maybe this is Shevchevich's way of saying we're ready for your Article 16 if you want to go that way, or we can put uh, these things into effect ourselves. If you want to start talking intensively, we're ready to start talking intensively, but this is what we're going to talk about. And, uh, you know, they've been round and round the houses for weeks, months now. Uh, they should know what's going on. The British are still saying we don't fully understand uh, these uh proposals at the EU are saying we're not sure at all whether they resolve all of the uh, concerns that we have and uh, also suggesting that uh The idea of trying to do, I mean Frost has quite a go here uh, in paragraph 12 at the idea of doing uh, some kind of an interim uh, agreement or dealing specifically with the customs and SPS issues and the medicines issues and parking the governance issues uh, because he said this kind of stuff would be, and I quote, inherently provisional by nature and would accordingly need to include mechanisms for addressing outstanding issues and resolving new concerns as they arise. So uh, you know, so much for doing a small, tight deal on the issues of immediate concern. Now he's saying, what about things that might arise in the future? And of course, if you go down that road,
0: we're you back can to the ECJ again. We- as
2: long as you like.
0: And just one of the, 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 the matters that came up and it was mostly, I think, if not almost exclusively British journalists asking Mara Shevcevic uh, the questions at that press conference today in Brussels, uh, the whether or not, Britain's stance on the ECJ had been communicated, a shift in Britain's stance, should I say, had been communicated to Brussels. Mara Shevchevich said, look, we are, we are consulting with parties in Northern Ireland. We're consulting with the European Parliament. We're waiting for an answer back from London on how they would facilitate greater participation from people in Northern Ireland on that end of the governance. But on the ECJ, he articulated a defence of the European Court of Justice as something that could be positively used by traders in Northern Ireland, not just the sort of quid pro quo for being in the single market, but actually an active positive for the protection of Northern Irish traders in the single market. So let's hear on that before we move on to other matters.
1: Sometimes I think that we are uh, kind of uh, missing the, the, the purpose uh, and the work of what the European Court of Justice does. Just give you one example. When I'm talking to the business representatives from time to time, I get a complaint, but you know, if it comes to that particular port or to that particular city in the European Union, they they do not know that we as a Northern Irish uh, um, uh, businesses are uh, on the single market of the EU. Can you help us? And of course, we do our utmost as a commission, but if... uh, there would be any barrier created for the traders uh, trading with the European Union, then the European Court of Justice is ultimate protector because the European Court of Justice is there to remove the barriers, to make uh, single market operating smoothly, to make sure that uh, uh, the rules are applied in the the same way. And therefore, it's part and parcel of uh, the the protocol on Ireland and uh, Northern Ireland. So therefore, um, it's it's, uh, part... uh, uh, of the overall deal we had uh, with the UK. It was not uh, uh, disputed at all uh, until the, the summer of uh, this year and therefore uh, for us uh, this is the, the the topic we are not uh, ready to include in our discussions.
0: So Sean it's, it's no longer I suppose the stick of the ECJ if you lose this you lose access to the single market. There's a, a more positive framing of it trying to show northern irish traders that you know there there is something to be embraced in the role of the ecj in terms of future participation in the single market for the free flow of your goods
2: indeed and and the they could also point to the role of the ecj in defending the city of london's right to uh, sell services uh, into the uh, single market when the uh, european central bank was trying to onshore uh, some uh, aspects of financial services into the eurozone Uh, the European Court of Justice intervened on behalf of the City of London, or following an an action from the City of London, and saying, nope, uh, EU law applies to all EU states, and as Britain is an EU state, we're going to protect their right to do their uh, financial services into the euro area uh, once they're under EU law. That doesn't matter. Now, of course, that judgment came to an end once Britain left the European Union. But again, if you are Uh, within the single market you can appeal to this court to protect your own rights and interests and that's what it is there for in in many instances. So it's not just uh, an oppressive mechanism as some would see it, it's a protective mechanism as indeed all courts and all legal systems are supposed to be. You're supposed to be protected within the law and uh, you try and take your case uh, to the court to seek protections and vindications of your rights under the law. So I guess they're going to try and uh, sell a bit harder on that and sell uh, uh, in a more positive way. But again, going back to Lord Frost's um, uh, statement today, uh, he's again insisting that a solution on governance is needed and saying that, the um, as the EU's preferred way forward on medicines, illustrates neither Northern Ireland nor the UK more broadly, gets any say on the way EU legislation is imposed on Northern Ireland. So he wants uh, issues of governance tackled, and uh, that will also involve dealing with the role of the European Court of Justice, although there have been hints out there saying, you know, uh, we're happy enough if they simply interpret very narrowly issues to do with the uh, interpretation of the law of the single market in goods as they apply to Northern Ireland there may be some role there or we might be able to have some kind of a cardboard cutout in between the European Court of Justice and Northern Ireland and and the broader UK, but very much trying to put it down into a a more uh, marginal and less meaningful position and saying that uh, what they really want is to have an arbitration mechanism, a separate arbitration mechanism uh, that would remove any dispute settlement from the European Court of Justice. So that is still the ask from the British side as it has been since July in the command paper or white paper setting out what they wanted in these talks.
0: Right okay well I'm I'm conscious of the fact that as we record this at five to five you're still hard at work on that report on Shropshire where we began this podcast before we leave it though we did and, and before we leave the subject of David Frost he was speaking in the House of Lords during the week.
2: He was. He was answering questions, um, as he does from time to time, in the Lords um, and was getting uh, asked about the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol and uh, made um, a somewhat controversial, some say menacing statement uh, in relation to uh, trade in Ireland because the day before they had, as we mentioned earlier, uh, decided that they weren't going to apply customs controls to goods moving in from the Republic of Ireland or Northern Ireland integrate Britain on the 1st of January but they are going to apply them to goods coming in from the rest of the European Union. Um, now there should have been customs posts built in Holyhead and Pembroke. Um, they haven't been built yet so they're just not ready to do it but uh, Lord Frost's explanation was that it's just too complicated to try and separate cargoes and consignments uh, that are coming from Northern Ireland through Dublin port and things that are coming from Dublin port and might be going in through Belfast. He says that will be possible later but not for the moment and so on a practical basis uh, they're taking what he calls a pragmatic approach and treating trade from Ireland differently to trade from the rest of the single market. But here's what he said uh, in response to a question about that in the House of Lords. It is true obviously that the the legal framework uh, for Northern Ireland and Ireland goods coming to, to Great Britain is different because of the unfettered access commitment. Uh, In practice, at the moment, it's not always possible to distinguish between the two categories of goods, but that will change in future. We will need a definitive solution to this question. And of course, the degree of pragmatism that we show in future to Irish goods coming to Great Britain uh, is going to be related to the degree of pragmatism and flexibility that the EU shows in allowing goods to move freely around all parts of the UK.
0: So, Sean, where is the menace in that?
2: The menace is that it, it looks like a bit of uh, an attempted hostage-taking here. Uh, don't be too hard on us. Give us what we want in terms of free flow of goods to Northern Ireland, or else we can make life awkward uh, for traders in the Republic of Ireland. They won't have this nice, easy access where they can just drive their trucks straight off the boat at Holyhead and nobody's going to be checking them. Uh, this is not something that the Irish government had ever asked for or ever looked for. I mean it might be nice for the truck drivers, it might be nice for the exporters uh, over in Ireland, but it was definitely not something that the government was looking for. In fact they are a bit worried from what I can gather uh, of being seen to be chipped off or separated or given different or preferential treatment from the rest of the European Union because it has always been a concern that uh, Ireland will be treated differently from other EU countries and that this might lead to new barriers being imposed on Irish goods exports into the European Union or that they will be checked uh, as if they were an import from the UK on arrival at the French, uh, Dutch and Belgian ports where those goods are landed. So they're very wary of this move by Frost uh, to, uh, first of all, give this unilateral move and secondly, they're wary of his, uh, you know, nice trade deal you got there, pity if something was to happen to it, approach <laughs> in the House of Lords. Right, OK.
0: So we started, Sean, with, I suppose, an oblique reference to Napoleon Bonaparte. We go now to finish to Clément Bon.
2: Yes, Mr. Uh, Bone. Uh, The bone of contention, uh, uh, as we might say, has been, of course, fishing licences. It's one of the other uh, irritants in the um, Franco-British relationship, and it's gotten entangled in Brexit. Um, The European Commission have been dragged somewhat reluctantly, I guess, into this dispute. Uh, Lord Frost has also been uh, involved in it. Uh, They've been paying out the licences one by one, but the, the French don't have enough licences as far as they're concerned, even though they got a, another uh, few from the uh, British and the, their Crown dependencies in uh, Jersey and Guernsey this week. Uh, but the French say they are still 73 licences short and today, Friday, they've said they are going to contact the European Commission and ask them to initiate legal action uh, against Britain to try and get more fish uh, fishing licences. So whilst the Northern Ireland Protocol talks get parked for Christmas and carry on into the new year it looks like the fishing row is right. also <laughs> going to carry on into right. the new year so right. what okay. can we say to you uh, other than well, we bon c- fête de Noël have a nice break an
0: army marches on his stomach as a, a great general once said but that won't be enough to sustain a podcast for next week because this is our last podcast we promise of 2021 we'll be back in the new year with fishing the protocol and God knows how many other episodes before this whole sorry saga ends. From me, Colm O'Mongain, RTE's Deputy Foreign
2: Editor in Dublin, goodbye from me. And from me, Sean Whelan, our correspondent in London, goodbye.